I think that we are our communities, right? As people, we make up the fabric of what people think of the community, how we act, what we, how we go about it. And I think that Dan did his job and went over there, and people were captivated and so concerned by the story that he became larger than life. And even if you didn't know him, mm-hmm. you were rooting for him. Literally, his uh, Vietnam POW bracelet John Wayne wore when he was over there. Wow. And so it became larger than life in those ways. And he was one of us. He was a normal guy. And like everyone else, he he did what he thought he needed to do. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. We have director Tim Breitbach on the show here. Tim's got a, a very interesting career, and we're going to let him talk about it because he started as an advertising copywriter, and now he is one of the directors that is being featured in the St. Louis Filmmaker Showcase. He directed the Final 19, which is a documentary story, uh, talking about the harrowing true story of Sergeant Dan Hafel as a, one of the final 19 prisoners of war to come home from the Vietnam War. Tim, welcome to St. Louis In Tune. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, your career, bring us, bring us up to date from when you started, because being a advertising copywriter has a little bit to do with directing, but I'm, I'm trying to get that transition for folks who are just driving around and listening at home right now. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it all started being a, a storyteller as a kid, and in fourth grade, I, uh, I rewrote Huck Finn into a play. It's just so I was just always writing and always had stories to tell. When I went to college at Iowa State, I wanted to go into sports journalism, but the classes were full, so I took some advertising classes and I go, oh, I like this. This is cool. I like to be able to sell products to do different things, like the business angle of it. So I went on to be an advertising cop throughout the country, landed in San Francisco, and ended up starting an ad agency called Asylum with one partner because we believed content, long-form content, through the internet was the way of the future, right? It took form over function. So it's like uh, function over form. So the idea was a story would be as long as it needed to be, not fitting a 30-second window, a 15-second slot, a 60-second radio ad. You know what I'm talking about. So we thought that was the future. We were a little ahead of our time. Right. We had a good agency from 95 to 2005. But during the middle of that, my business partner and I wrote a script called dopamine that got into the Sundance filmmakers labs. Wow. And so you go from being an ad guy to then going into this amazing, prestigious, super cool laid back environment where you're hanging with Robert Redford. You got Kathy Bates sitting alongside. One of my mentors was Stuart Stern, Rebel Without a Cause. Wow. Um, and you just had amazing people to learn from. And it was such a generous environment. So not advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cutthroat. <laughs> so it was just, I mean, it gets cutthroat later, believe right, me. Right. You know, believe me. Trying to sell a film at Sundance in the in Park City when the, the snow's coming down. It's just, it's pretty daunting task but at the same time i've always loved story and people are at the heart of the stories it's and i've always had empathy and so to be able to do that so i've got into scripted projects a lot more and then 
I, I did a documentary, a private documentary, on this thing called the San Francisco Sheriff's Air Squadron. And it was a bunch of World War II pilots, the greatest generation, who had their own planes, who do relief missions in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, to earthquake victims, to children with cancer that needed to get flown to their... But they also went down and did boondoggles and looked for the head of Pancho Villa down in, in Mexico having a tequila run. So right. they were the greatest generation indeed. And so I did that, and I got so deep into these stories and... I had people crying and doing it, and I, I suddenly realized the power that I had to be able to help these people tell their stories. Mm -hmm. And so I became very committed to the real story kind of side of the business rather than the coming up with the, the false the, or the narrative or the fiction. So when you're growing up and you're rewriting Huck Finn, did you have that performed or did you say, hey, get my neighbors, get... I don't know if you have siblings. Get my siblings. We're going to do this thing. We did it in school. We, okay. Yeah. We, I, it, it was one of those things that you just, and you didn't do the full play. You didn't put the full thing on, but it was like, it was for a class. And it's just, I had great teachers. I grew up in Dubuque, Iowa. Went through the Catholic school system up there. And they they just all support. If you had a little spark to you, they're going to allow the spark to come out. So, so what brings you to St. Louis from San Francisco? My brother is at St. Louis University. And he what used to be their head athletic trainer there for years. His okay. name is Tony Breitbach or Anthony Breitbach. And he got his Ph.D. and he's a professor there. And I only have one sibling. We knew he was going to be here. My parents lived on Truman Lake. They had a fishing resort down there called Hickory Hollow in Tightwad, Missouri. And yeah. a population 50. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and I just had my first child. And so... It was time to get out of California, so we all settled here in St. Louis. And, in fact, I moved right under Rock Hill Drive in Rock Hill. Wow. And so I was really close. Like, this is the neighborhood. It was the neighborhood that always was getting threatened to be a target, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. like and getting disheveled, but it's a, it hung on. Now, talk about this story, the final 19, about uh, Sergeant Dan Hafel, and he went to the, the Vietnam war i i know having watched the show he dropped out of school and he comes from a family of uh, a lot of military based well all of his family was in the military and really the town really supported the military and i think there was an expectation that you went talk a little bit about the final 19 and dan because there's a connection you have with him yeah dan's father and my grandmother were first cousins okay and these big catholic families that all came to settle up in that area around there balltown guttenberg Buena vista were like clans you have 30 40 50 60 100 cousins that all are just, they're close related, they're not so close related, but they all share the same name, so they shared the clan. And I knew of Dan when I grew up. I was younger then. I wouldn't have registered the war in that way. Mm -hmm. But after I had some success, when I was out in California, my cousins who worked on their cars, their convertibles and all this kind of stuff, their right. old classic cars, said, Tim, you need to tell this story. So I came back and I met Dan. And I the first time I met him, I just let the tape roll. And that's why it has sometimes a certain home movie feel to it. And because that's the way it started. It was to tell a, a story and to understand a story. And I'm a firm believer in you always have the microphone running. You don't want to miss that moment. <laughs> no, it's just especially the moment where you can react to a story first being told to you. Mm -hmm. And the one thing about Dan's story is like all good horror stories. There's a lot of horrific circumstances that happen. A, share, a fair share of stupidity. Uh 
enough arrogance that you think what's going to happen, then you're in control of some kind of destiny. And you mix those all together, and it's it's a poignant, humorous story, and it's a lot about faith. Mm-hmm. It's a lot about the love of this country and the love of getting back here. But it also doesn't sugarcoat it whatsoever. And I think that from seeing it, Dan could be one of the best storytellers I've ever encountered. Because we, had, especially in the surgery scene, when he had the appendix taken out without anesthetic, we had the interview went back and forth between two interviews done 14 years apart. And his body Ooh. movements were the same. Wow. His reactions the same. So this is a man that went and relived that experience, and he could do it in an instant. Mm. And that, to me, is just the authenticity of the story, the authenticity of the experience, and being able to transport it. That was what really fascinated me. So from there, it's just like I went on this journey, and it took a long time because I had other things going on. And so I almost felt like the project was held in captivity for about 10 years. But but I felt a push to finish it. And especially I felt that push when it was the 50th anniversary on February 5th last year of when he was captured. Mm. And so I said, this has got to be done. Mm-hmm. Let's get it done. And, and so I powered through. And that premiered in April? Yes. No. Yeah, was, was it, it April? God, I don't even remember now. Yeah, probably April. Yeah, uh, up in Dubuque. Up, yeah. Right, up mm-hmm. in Dubuque. Okay. Won the audience award. Okay. Apparently it blew everything away, but we had a pretty hometown crowd. But the reality is we had 350 people right out of COVID, three different screenings. They added an additional screening, standing ovations, great Q&As, and it's just, it felt like it was the right place at the right time. Almost head lasso is right now for a lot of people on right. uh, Apple TV. It's just, it's a fantastic it just makes you feel something different right People now. are hungry for a variety of different things, and that's one of the beauties of the Whitaker St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase. And there's only a few more days left. Yep. And so if you want to, matter of fact, there's just two more days left. And you can just go to cinemastlouis.org, and you'll be able to get into that and get some information about that. Back to Dan's story, your involvement with him. I know several of these things were filmed in on the river at you know the local cafe, things like that, in somebody's garage. It, it seemed like that, and a lot of the townsfolk really seemed to get involved and supportive because you're given background. Dan's given his own background, and then you're kind of given background of what other people think about him how do those two mesh together and what's the importance of that i think that we are our communities right as people we make up the fabric of what people think of the community how we act what we how we go about it and i think that dan did his job and went over there and people were captivated and so concerned by the story that he became larger than life and if you didn't know him mm-hmm. You were rooting for him. Literally, his uh, Vietnam POW bracelet, John Wayne wore when he was over there. Wow. And so it became larger than life in those ways. And he was one of us. He was a normal guy. And like everyone else, he, he did what he thought he needed to do. He enlisted and to get out quick. But he also, as you read, he was a pretty tough guy. And he had been, as one of the youngest boys in the family, he had a lot of people mess with him but as you can see through his through the other people communicating about it um 
he just is so endearing and he's such a great guy that they easily became part of the story and they're all lifelong friends or and your family and your cousins are your lifelong friends and so they're all invested in this American hero as I was watching that you're you got some footage from of the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. how do you obtain things like that for those budding directors out there who are listening to this one of the cool things is that YouTube has a lot of stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And Vietnam veterans in specific like to share their stuff and they like to see their stories told. So they're willing to get that. Um, and then some stuff's in the public domain mm-hmm. because it's been a quite a, a long time. And then all their stuff is you just ask. And if you're doing it the right way and it's stuff that isn't really, I would say, have commercial value to the person in its current form, you have better opportunities to get that stuff. But it's painstaking. It really is. And knowing that, the first thing we did, and I think you'll probably remember in the film, there was quite a lot of sound design Mm -hmm. done under Dan's interview footage. And so the first thing we did is we said, the best asset we have is Dan, him telling the story. So let's build up the sound library around him as he's telling that story to put people in the scene and then we'll go about adding in footage because we weren't going to go shoot in vietnam yeah and if i said to dan let's go to vietnam he said the hell we are yeah no we're not going to do that yeah and so then in turn it's i funded the film and self-funding a film means every time you make a decision to include anything you're also saying are we going on vacation this year are we doing this? Are we doing these things? So the sacrifices you make when you self-fund something mm-hmm. are very real to your family. And so it was. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that you say, can I go shoot this or can I do it a different way? Can right. I go do this or do it a different way? And I think I would have never done it any other way because it made me literally, I was a cameraman. I was shooting at Jefferson Barracks. I was shooting in Golden Gate Park, at Golden Gate Park, uh, Eagle Point Park over the Mississippi River because they have a Japanese tea garden, making it look like it was some kind of temple or something Mm -hmm. like that. It just is like, how do you recreate a helicopter going down? How do you recreate the feeling of looking around for your helicopter mate in the jungle? And so all of that was like, I would literally keep the camera in my car and I would see something. I'd see a cool bluff down in like by Arnold, between Arnold and Fenton. Mm -hmm. I would get out and I'd pull over the side and I would see the light coming through the trees at a certain way, I'd lay on my back and film that as if I was laying in, if Dan was laying on his back. And I would do that on Saturday mornings and say, I need to get this for my editor because he's not going to be able to tell the story another way. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And when you, do you lay things out? Do you script it out how you want to proceed throughout the film? Or what's your thought process on how you do that or what's your, your design? I was lucky enough to have produced about 25 television shows in the reality genre when I was at Cool Fire Studios. I helped start the TV division there. And so I've learned how to take note cards and create a card wall that breaks out a story by acts. And in the TV world, it's very specific acts because of the timing of the commercials. Right. So they all have a very specific format. So for me, seeing the big picture and putting it up on a wall is not hard. But I also had a chronology. I had a chronology to work with. So I knew I had a time window. And so I broke out by acts what was the key moments. Like when he had malaria was the end of the first act. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just it's like and when he was in captivity was uh, the beginning of the third act. And then I realized I came to it. I go, 
everyone that watches this film is going to want to know what Dan's doing now. So I had to put the epilogue there. And just so you know, the interview with his son and his wife, Sue and Jesse, were the were done, were finished two weeks before Dubuque Festival. And they are essential to the ending of the film. And so it was one of those things that even though it took 14 years, you never stop. It's just like if you can improve it in some kind of way, it's just like you're going to do that. And, and that continues to this day. So I mean, That's a very interesting comment that you made because I, I will watch some documentaries on things that happened in my lifetime. And you wonder at the end of the film, well, what happened to these people? And I think I've seen more films that do that. This person, and, they, and then they'll have a little a couple sentences. They went on to do this and they died or they're still living and this is what's going on, which is very helpful to get a completion. Mm -hmm. And rather than you're up in the air, what happened to that person? Well, I've just invested my life with them <laughs> and gone through the experience with them. Now what's going on with them? Sure. And that's important. Yeah. And I think that um, these, so many people were behind them to not have that euphoria of him being home mm -hmm. and not being able to capture and tell that part of the story would have been a disservice to the whole of the storyteller. You know what I mean? Because every, everybody was affected in a different way. And to be able to articulate, that was fantastic. One of the other things that I think is incredibly unique to the film is I wrote a, story, I wrote a song called O Pau Mia Set Him Free. And I wrote it with Pearl Breitbach, who's my aunt. And I wrote it with her musician partner, Scott Guthrie. And the idea for the concept was Palmia is prisoner of war, missing in action. Mm. And so I saw her as like a Greek god or an angel. And I thought about Dan's mom, Florence, and that candlelight vigil and her praying the whole time. And so then I thought of, is this a patron saint to the prisoners? Is this a pa patron saint to all these people? So I saw Palmia as this female presence keeping watch over these guys and girls to make sure they didn't feel harm. So mm. the idea was, oh, Palmia set him free. Mm. And, and then what we did is I said, okay, I want to use this as a vehicle throughout the film. And it became a 35-verse song. You had and a it, lot to tell there. <laughs> yeah. And it's just so there were 35 stories. And so then Pearl, my, my aunt, she had seen from some of my original lyrics that I had mentioned Fortunate Son. And so she goes, what if we put a tiny little reference in each of the verses to a song from the era hmm. and so you'll hear satisfaction in there you'll hear fire you'll hear all kinds of stuff like that so that to me um became one of the most uh, proud moments of the piece because as a filmmaker starting from scratch you can use all your tools and when you fund your own film you can say, I want to write a song. Exactly. I want to exercise this part of me, and no one's going to tell me I can't. Right. Because <laughs> you're funding it. Exactly. Even if I suck. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. Right. It's just, and, and I don't write music, but it's you can collaborate. And that's the beauty of all these things is a great collaboration. We've been talking to Tim Breitbach. He is a director, and he directed The Final 19, which is a documentary for the St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase. Just briefly, Tim, uh, talk about the showcase. Uh, the showcase is amazing. Cliff Froelich and Chris Clark run it, and they select local filmmakers with a local pedigree, a story that's localized, anything to highlight the region and its people and its filmmakers. And it's virtual this year and was last year because of COVID, obviously, mm -hmm. but it is 
for me in my film, it helped because everyone from that's deployed, that's in different parts of the world, said, God, where can I see it? And so before you get a distribution deal, you have things like this that allow people to see it. So it's fantastic. Right. And, and they're a real nurturing organization. So the next step is potentially getting into this international film festival with it. So it's like an incubator, if you will, a way to get in with the, uh, the group. So I've, in fact, I was re referred by Cliff when I first moved here to be an adjunct professor at, at Webster uh, university mm -hmm. and my editor was one of my was one of my students in my first screenwriting class there you go ryan Wells. so it's a very tight community it is a tight community and yeah we've had chris on the show a couple times talking about this prior to covid and it's a great thing that happens in st louis they've done a good job of getting it online because of covid and so you have just a couple more days folks go to cinemastlouis.org cinemastlouis.org and check out the st louis filmmaker showcase that's for the final 19 by tim breitbach there's also several other movies on there that you can watch tim thanks for coming into st louis and tune today thanks for having me and being so generous with your time no problem we are glad you listened to this episode of st louis in tune please share this podcast or tell a friend St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Strickland.